If you don't know me, my name's Paul, Paul Wilson. I work as a carer in a nursing home, so I look after people at the end of their lives. Been doing that five and a bit years now. Um, I was born and raised in Brazil, in the northeast of Brazil. Mum and dad worked out there, but been living here in Sutton the last six years or so. Before that, I was working in India. Uh, just move on to the next slide. I wonder if you've noticed at the top of the hill what the wall's looking like. Did you see it as you came in? I've got a few close-up shots there. Loads of bricks coming out, a few stones missing. Um, the scary thing is, here's a family photo right by that wall. And if you're anything like me and you have an overactive imagination, you start to think, you know, like the game of Jenga, how many, how many little bricks can you take out before, it's <laughs> before it starts wobbling a little bit too much? Thankfully, someone at the city council has got a similar kind of imagination to me. So they put fencing up, and apparently they're fixing it in the next few weeks, according to Donald, maybe. Who knows? Um, I really like etymology, which is the, the, the study of words. I find words really interesting. You can find out a lot about language and a lot about culture by looking into words. Any idea where the word wall comes from, where we get the word wall? This is an interesting one. It actually has nothing to do with bricks or stones or mortar. It comes from a Latin word, vallus, or Vaulus, which is for a wooden stake. And that's where the Romans would build palisades around their forts with loads of wooden stakes next to each other. And those wooden stakes, each was called a vallus. And that's where we get the word wall. So I find words fascinating. Do you recognize this word? <laughs> any, idea, any idea where that word comes from? It actually comes, it comes from um, a Venetian dialect of Italian in the 1300s, quarantine, comes from their words, quaranta giorni. Apparently, I pronounced that right this morning, according to an Italian. Um, and it means 40 days. And what happened was that the Venetians, it started in the city of Dubrovnik, which is now Croatia, during the time of the Black Death, which was a serious plague that killed a lot of people in Europe. The Venetians controlled a lot of ports. And when the ships would come into port, they would make the people on the ships wait for 40 days to see if any symptoms appeared of the Black Death on anyone on the ships before they let them into the port. So it was quaranta giorni, 40 days, quarantine. So those people wait there. Originally, it was 30 days, but they decided 30 days wasn't long enough. They wanted to give it that extra 10 days. So if they hadn't extended it, the word quarantine would be uh, trentine, I believe. Um, and there's some fascinating words in, in the Bible. Um, so the New Testament, Old Testament of the Bible is written in Hebrew. The New Testament is written in Greek. Um, and this word here is a very interesting word, merim now. Any ideas what that means? Any Bible buffs? New Testament Greek? Um, it's actually a word, so if you take the wall outside, the wall's made up of lots of bricks, of, of stones, and it's a whole load of different things that make up part of a whole. Merim now, it's, it's taken from the word of one part being out of place. And we translate this word as anxious. It's often used as anxious in the Bible, because if you imagine yourself as a whole person, what anxiety can do, or what in particular this kind of anxiety is, is where you're there, you're present with people in the room, but your thoughts might be, oh, I should have done that better last week. Or, oh, no, I've got this thing coming up next week that I'm worried about. Or there's this thing going on somewhere else in the world that I'm thinking about. And so your body is present in a room, but all kinds of parts of you are all over the place. So it's the idea that there's 
parts of you that aren't there, so you're not quite whole. And it's translated as anxious, but it kind of means a bit more than anxious. And then there's another word in the New Testament, eirene, which in the Hebrew is translated shalom, and we use it as peace. And that is almost the opposite. Eirene is where there's a wholeness. It's the idea that if you have a wall and there's lots of separate parts, but they're all together in harmony, and there's a wholeness, it all comes together. So you can have a city where there's Eirene, where all the different parts of the city are working in harmony, and there's nothing missing. It's all in sync. So you contrast that word with Merim now, where it's like you're almost in bits. Eirene is where there's wholeness. On the 18th of September, 2016, I spoke here in the church on Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. So the first two verses of the book of Philippians. And what happened was Donald recommended that instead of flitting around the Bible and preaching on whatever, I work my way slowly through a book of the Bible, which he's now doing with John. But if you think Donald's being slow, this was 2016. Three and a half years later, I'd made it to chapter four of Philippians. Um, and I was due to speak on verses six and seven on Sunday, the 22nd of March, 2020. It was a mothering Sunday. But I never gave that talk. Instead of that talk, we had the church's first ever call to prayer live stream. And the next day, the 23rd, the United Kingdom went into a national lockdown. Um, and we've all been through quite a lot since then, hey? If you think, cast your mind back over the last 16 months. So this is what it says in the book of Philippians, chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Is this, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And I've been anxious about preparing this talk for 16 months. <laughs> <laughs> If you're, if you're the kind of person that likes to know where we're headed, what's going on in a talk, how long there is left, um, all I'm going to do is I'm going to ask three questions of that text. Number one, what does it mean by do not be anxious? Then number two, how do you actually do it? How do you move from anxiety to peace? And finally, what does the peace of God look like? If you've got any questions, there's going to be a short Q&A at the end, so Donald's going to ask me questions, and you can text in. And that's the phone number. So if you have any questions that come to mind, if something's unclear, if I don't make sense, then you can text in to that number. But before we do that, let's pray. Father, I thank you that you're here present tonight and you know each one of us intimately, uncomfortably intimately, and you love us. I pray you'd come now and you'd do what you want to do tonight. In Jesus' strong name. Amen. So before we go into question number one, just a quick bit of context. The book of Philippians is actually a letter. It was written by Paul of Tarsus, or the Apostle Paul. He was in a Roman jail, and it looks like he's got a bit of a headache there. Um, and he wrote to a group of new Christians in the city of Philippi just up there at the top, which is in modern-day Greece. Uh, so it's a new group of Christians, and they probably would have met in someone's house, 
And Paul wrote this letter in jail, and it was sent through a man called Epaphroditus, and it would have then been read publicly, probably by Epaphroditus, to the group of Christians there. So that's what, when people say the book of Philippians, it was originally a letter that was then added into the Bible when they, when they formed the canon later on. And this bit we're looking at tonight comes towards the end of that letter. So let's just have a look at it again. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So question number one, straight in, what does it mean by do not be anxious? So you have this idea, that word merim now that we looked at earlier for anxious, where there are parts of you that are not there, you're not quite whole, you're anxious. When you're in the room, you're not quite fully in the room. When you're lying in bed at night, you're not quite fully in bed at night because there's bits of you that are thinking about all kinds of things about the place. And Paul's saying, don't be like that. Now, this is a slightly uncomfortable thing to talk about in our culture, and I realize some of what I'm about to say might be controversial to you. Just bear with me. You can have a go at me outside afterwards. That's fine. Um, But the thing is, when Paul says, do not be anxious, it's not a suggestion or, oh, you could try this out. It's actually an instruction. He's giving it as a command. And so you can say, how on earth can you say that? How can you give a command to not be anxious? Um, And it's not just Paul. In the Bible, Jesus says something very similar. John's Gospel, chapter 14, verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. I think here in our culture, we quite often think of our feelings. It's a bit like the weather. You're not sure what it's going to be like tomorrow. It's probably going to be miserable, (laughs) if you're anything like me. And you've got no control over it, so you make sure you bring your coat with you or your umbrella. We think about our feelings a little bit like that. But the Bible seems to look at feelings in a slightly different way. It's almost like your feelings are a little bit like a disobedient child or a naughty pet. It's like you haven't quite got, you don't know quite what they're going to do, but you can kind of keep a grasp on them, try and keep them under control. The great poet and King David, he wrote, it's almost like he's telling his feelings off. And he, he repeats this same thing in the psalm several times. This is Psalm 42. Why, my soul, are you so downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I'll yet praise him, my Savior and my God. It's almost like he's telling his feelings off. Why are you being down? And you might be sat there thinking, yeah, that's fine, mate. Paul, Jesus, David, they had things under control. They could control their feelings. But this is real life. You don't know my life. You don't know what it's like for me. Maybe the Bible's just, you know, a bit far-fetched for modern thinking. Uh, I slightly disagree. I think the Bible's very familiar with the lows of human emotion, anxiety, worry, depression. I think they're very familiar things to the Bible. Jesus, in Matthew 26, he says to his disciples, my soul is consumed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. That's Jesus. He's asking his friends, stay with me. I'm low. Paul, in this same letter to the Philippians, he's talking about Epaphroditus, the guy that was delivering the letter. And Epaphroditus had been very ill. Um, And so he's saying to the Philippians, therefore I'm all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. Slightly different word he uses there for anxiety, but the, the kind of sense is the same. 
So people in the Bible knew what anxiety was like, for sure. The Bible never shies away from negative emotion. If you read the book of Lamentations, you'll see that. Read the Psalms, Psalm 22. There's lows that people go through. But I want to, first of all, kind of suggest that maybe the way people in the Bible deal with negative emotion, like anxiety, is slightly different to the way our culture deals with it. Um, just a quick, interesting side note. Here in the letter to the Philippians, Paul uses that exact same word, merim now, for anxiety, but he uses it in a positive sense. He's talking about his friend Timothy and the way Timothy relates to the Philippians. He says, I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. That word concern is the exact same word in the Greek. In other words, Timothy has a part of him that's invested in the Philippians, but in a positive sense. So it's almost like you can be concerned for people, but if it takes you to wanting to help them and have a focus on their needs, then that's healthy. That doesn't need sorting out. It's the exact same word that he uses for anxiety, but in a positive sense. Just an interesting side note. So just to summarize, what does it mean by do not be anxious? The Bible's very clear. Anxiety, negative emotions are a normal part of life. Jesus felt anxiety. Paul felt anxiety. It's a normal part of life. And sometimes feelings of care and concern can be good and helpful. But unlike the weather, unlike the way often our culture looks at it, you can have a degree of control over the feelings that take center stage in your life. You can direct those feelings, which leads on to the next question. The obvious question is, how do you do that? How on earth do you do that? How do you move from anxiety to peace? And it's important to clarify, I'm not going to cover everything about anxiety in one night. I'm just going to focus on what this passage has to say about anxiety. The Bible has loads to say about anxiety and about peace and how you get peace, you know, resting well, trusting God. Today, we're just focusing on what's on the passage. But before we get into it, if it's helpful for you to close your eyes, I just want you to think for a moment, what have been the anxieties today or in the last week? What is it that when you have a quiet moment, where does your mind wander? Last thing at night when you're lying in bed, what is it that's kept you up? What are the thoughts bouncing around? Just bring them up to the surface. That might be easy to do. Maybe you've not had any anxiety this week. Good for you. Although my mum says that if you've got no anxiety, you're probably causing someone else anxiety. Hmm. <laughs> but hopefully this is a helpful exercise. So have you got those things in your head, yeah? Those worries. Now in this passage, just very quickly, I'm not expecting anyone to remember all of these. It's just Paul kind of has a, a helpful, five helpful things for channeling anxiety in a healthy way. And we're just going to whiz through them real quick. I'm not trying to remember them, just hope that the basic principles are useful. So very quickly, number one, do not be anxious about anything but in everything. So straight away, it's not a quick fix. It's not a pill that you're going to take and you're going to feel fine, no more anxiety. This is the solution. Bang, you're done. Perfect peace for the rest of your life. It's not like that. It's something you do again and again and again. Anything you have anxieties about, everything you have anxieties about, big or small. What shall I cook for tea? Am I living my life wisely? Do I wear shorts or trousers or a skirt? Am I going to survive this illness? Anything. So everything you feel anxious about, you include in this process. So it's a habit. So that worry that you've got in the head, those worries that you thought about just now, 
every time they come up, it's getting into the habit of treating them in this way. So as I was preparing this talk, some days, 20, 30, 40 times, I was having to process worries, and I was trying to practice what I was preparing to say to you guys, and it was hard work. But it's a habit, and you keep trying. It doesn't work straight away. You keep trying. You don't give up. So it's not a quick fix. It's a habit. Number two, by prayer and petition. We know anxiety is a serious business. It can affect your health. And getting rid of anxiety is a serious business. And we're approaching a holy and powerful God. It's not a casual chat. It's a serious prayer. We're needing help. And so we're asking something carefully and deliberately with reverence. So it's a habit, and it's something that we're doing deliberately. Number three, with thanksgiving. All through the Bible, the way you approach God, the best way to approach God is giving thanks. Psalm 100, verses 4 and 5, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Praise his name, for the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. In the field of psychology, gratitude is becoming a massive deal in terms of our mental well-being and the way that practicing gratitude can rewire the brain in helpful ways. So for the last 10 years, I don't think I've missed a single day. Every day, I've written down at least five things that I feel grateful for that day. Every day. For, I think, more than the last 10 years since I finished school. Every day. Some days more. Some days it's hard. Some days it's like, I'm grateful for my bicycle, food to eat, a warm bed, my family, and grateful lists. And that's it. <laughs> um, but that practice has been very important for me and got me through some real low points. Number four, present your requests to God. And it, it, it's fine to say, God, I'm really anxious. Please help me. I don't know how else to pray to you. Just please help me. Um, I know a lot of people that find the Jesus prayer helpful. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Sometimes you're not in a place to figure out what it is you're praying. But what Paul's saying here is, you know that anxiety that's in your mind... What is it exactly that you're worried about? And if you were to turn that anxiety into a request, what would it be? And sometimes that's simple. So for millions of people tonight, the anxiety is, I don't know how I'm going to feed my children. And so the request becomes, God, we need food. For millions of people tonight, that's a very simple anxiety that you turn into a request. But sometimes it's more complex. I wonder for you, like, am I living my life as well as I could be at the moment? How do you turn that into a request? It's harder. But can you take that anxiety and turn it into a specific request? So it's a habit. It's deliberate. It involves gratitude. It involves making specific requests. And then finally, those words, your request. So this, these words would have originally been read out to a group of people with the idea that that group of people would together follow what those words said. And the words, your requests, are both written in the plural. This isn't something you're meant to sort out by yourself. We do it together, and that's important. So you take those things that make you anxious, and it's good to share them with other people. It's good to listen to what's making other people anxious. Sometimes that perspective helps. Um, and this is a side note, but sharing it with other people can include medical professionals. And that's not unspiritual, that's helpful. 
You know, if you've got a medical problem that's making you anxious, talking about it with a doctor isn't unspiritual, it's pragmatic, it's clever. You know, I, I ruptured my ACL playing football. God could have healed my ACL on the spot and I could have gone back to playing football, but he chose to do it for a process. I went and saw a surgeon and I've been through ages of physiotherapy and then on Friday I was discharged. So I, on Tuesday, hopefully I'm going to be playing football again. You might call me foolish, but <laughs> there you go. I grew up in Brazil, I can't help it. <laughs> so it's a habit, it's a deliberate action, it involves gratitude, it involves specific requests, and it's something we do together. And all of that's helpful, and hopefully some of that will help and make a difference in your life. But life can be really hard, and sometimes we try our best, and that's not quite enough. It says this in Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It's in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. And there's a promise at the end of this piece of writing we're looking at tonight. There's a promise. It says, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So what does that mean? What does the peace of God look like? Last question. Bit of a side note. Eastern spirituality is pretty popular in our culture at the moment. So, and a lot of it's helpful stuff. Meditations, helpful. Sitting quietly in a room is helpful. Managing your breathing. Mindfulness. A lot of that's helpful for living a healthy life. Um, and a lot of the ideas in Eastern spirituality come from things in Buddhism, things said by the Buddha. So one of the things the Buddha said is this. It's not every day you get Buddhist quotes in a Baptist church. Um, Buddha said this, peace comes from within. Do not seek it without. In other words, you find peace inside. Don't go looking for it elsewhere. It's interesting that when you see pictures of the Buddha, it's often with eyes closed, looking inward. Another quote from the Buddha, work out your own salvation. Do not depend on others. And we see that kind of mindset reflected. If you think about it, if you look on things like Instagram uh, or the way people talk, that mindset's reflected a lot. Find a solution to your anxiety within. Don't depend on other people for the solutions. Find it within. The truth is within you. In our culture, that's quite a, a strong strain of thought that goes through people's minds. And I just want to suggest that this passage, the message of this passage is quite different. I think the point is that we can do our small bits to help with anxiety, with worry, and they're important. That the work that we do with our own anxiety is useful and important. But I think we need help with it. And I think what this passage is saying, we have a God who cares about us. And he's waiting to step in and do his thing. And when that happens, you'll know about it. I think that's what this passage is saying. So what does God's peace look like? It's a strong peace. You know, in Eastern meditation, things like that, the peace that you talk about is quite serene and quiet. But this is quiet. It's almost an aggressive peace. That word will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So when I was a teenager, I, grew, I was born and raised in Brazil. And the part of Brazil I grew up in, there was quite a lot of violent crime. Um, and I remember one day as a teenager, I'd planted some trees around the edge of a football pitch by our house 
to stop the ball going away so far. So I planted these trees, and I was up early one morning, just in my shorts, hot morning, shorts and flip-flops with my watering can, and I was watering the trees, and I looked up, and I realized that all around me in different groups, there were some seriously big men in some serious-looking uniform with some serious-looking machine guns all around me, and I'm there in my shorts with my watering can, and one of them's telling me to come over. And these weren't the kind of police that you saw on the street in the town. These were serious police, seriously big guys, serious-looking men who you knew that you knew they'd seen some things. And I'm there in my watering can, you know. <laughs> Just came out to water the trees, and they were all round our land. They'd, they actually they were there because they were looking for someone who had murdered quite a number of people, and he had been on our land in the early hours of the morning, but he wasn't there anymore. Um, and they'd come, and they'd surrounded the land because there'd been a tip-off, and they were trying to catch him. And they'd, they were all around the land, and if anyone had wanted to get off our land, they would not have been able to. These were serious, seriously trained guys. Um, said another story for another time. But that word, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, that word guard is in that sense that those men were around the land. When the Apostle Paul was in a city called Damascus, they wanted to catch him, and so the ruler of the city put guards on the walls around the city to stop Paul from escaping. Exact same word, guard. It's the sense. So the Philippians, it was a Roman colony. They would have had that idea of Roman soldiers guarding the walls. It's that if there's something inside that's trying to get out, it's not going to get out. And it's saying God's peace will guard your heart and your mind in that way. Yes, it's guarding from outside, from bad things from outside coming in, but also those thoughts that wander, that you can't keep a grasp on, those worries, the things that make you off-center, that are always getting out, and you want to be in the room present, but you can't. God's peace comes, and it sets a guard on your heart and your mind. It's almost like, an aggressive, like a military-grade peace. It's not serene. It's almost it's strong. And it guards our hearts and our minds in Christ. It's like Jesus is a city with walls and we're kept in him and we're whole and we're at peace. I really love this quote. It's in older English, um, but I find it very helpful if you just try and follow it, sense of the words. I think it captures this idea of being in Christ. It's a guy called Alexander McLaren. He says this, Life is to be as Christ, for Christ, by, in, and from Christ. So shall there be strength, peace, and freedom in our days. The unity brought into life thereby will issue in calm blessedness, contrasted wondrously with the divided hearts and aims which fritter our days into fragments and make our lives heaps of broken links instead of chains. And this really matters because I think for a lot of people, we're not living the life that we could be living because we're frittering our days away because of that anxiousness, because we're not whole, because we're not centered. A guy called William Hendrickson said, peace is the smile of God reflected in the soul of the believer. I'm trying to explain what this peace looks like, but it says there in the passage, it's the peace that transcends all understanding. It's something beyond what we can figure out ourselves. If we could figure this out and work out how it works and sort it out ourselves, there would be no point us being here tonight. There would be no point in the Christian faith. 
If you can find peace by yourself, within yourself, then our belief is wrong and we're wasting our time. Buddha says find peace within yourself. The Christian message is you need help. I need help. And there's someone who wants to give you that help. Now, I've, I've no idea how they're going to fix that wall up the top of the hill. I've looked at it and I thought, uh, other than knocking it down and building it again, I've no idea how I would do that. But I'm sure someone from Birmingham City Council has better ideas. Uh, maybe Dave. <laughs> I have no idea how you'd fix that wall. And I have no idea how it is that God takes me and takes people who are in bits with anxiety and makes them whole again. But what I do know is that he wants to do that and that he's able to do that. And so to finish tonight, you've got two choices when you walk out the door. Number one, you can do it the way of Buddha and the way a lot of people try and do it, which is you try and sort your anxieties out by yourself and find peace within. And a lot of people are walking that path and you're welcome to walk it. Or number two, you can walk the way of Jesus and of Paul, which is to say, God, here I am. I need your peace. I'm willing to work at it. I've got people around me, and we're going to work together, but we need you ultimately. We can't do it by ourselves. So let's do that now, if you'd like to. If you want to try and work it out yourself, you're welcome to, but right now I'd like to pray and just ask God to bring his peace. Oh, Father, I thank you that you are a God who gives peace. Thank you that you see us when we're really worried. You've seen each one of us at our lowest points. You know what's bouncing around in our heads. And you've said that what you want is for us to have shalom, wholeness, peace. And I pray now, Lord, would you do what only you can do? And would you bring peace to anxious hearts as we open them to you? Yeah. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you ever so much for not only speaking through the day, but being willing to do this. And um, Yeah, that's no, fine. I'm on your side. So you can always say, what do you think? Yeah. That's all right. Yeah, that's fine. That okay. was my, from when I was first told I had to do it, I'd say, well, if I don't know the answer, I'll say, what do you think, Donald? <laughs> so let's, kick, let's, let's just go straight into something. Um, I, think you, I think you answered this, but let's just say, kind of put it in a bit more clearly. Yeah. A lot of people worry that being anxious is a sin. Would you call it a sin? Well, if it is, I'm a world-class sinner. Yeah. Top-notch sinner. Um, <laughs> no, well, if you believe that Jesus lived a sinless life, the Bible's very clear that Jesus had real anxiety. You know, especially you know in the build-up to being crucified, he wasn't calm. He was quite worried. Um, I'd say he was anxious. And so, if 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 Jesus never sinned and was anxious, then being anxious in itself isn't a sin. I don't think there's anyone in this in the whole story of the Bible didn't experience anxiety. Um, I think the question is what you then do with it. Right. Yeah. Right. So you talk about uh, this, 
what do you mean by then by this command to not be anxious? How do you sort of marry those two ideas? Yeah, I think so you, you could kind of compare it, I guess, with, with sexual sin. You know, I think all of us, well, a lot of people will struggle with thoughts of a sexual nature that aren't what pleases God. But having those, those thoughts coming into your head, that's not something that you voluntarily choose. It's something that happens to you. The question is, what do you then do with that thought? Um, and I think similar with anxiety. The, do you sit with that anxiety and let it dominate your life and control the way that you live? Or do you, with God's help and with the help of other people, try and address it? That, that yeah, I think, it, and I like the idea, of, you know, because I'm a dog lover mm. and um, about to be training another dog, so I'm very much into this idea yeah. uh, that you can accept their bad behaviour yeah. or you can choose to address it. Yeah. And you're, that's the idea that we, you know, we're going to get anxious. Life brings anxiety. Mm. It's how we, we, we deal with that. And like with dogs, sometimes you do all the tricks you know and you work at it and work at it and work at it, and your dog is still a nightmare. Yeah. And you need professional help. Absolutely. And I think, yeah, my mum and dad have had quite a few dogs and <laughs> of questionable character. And the moment you yeah. think you've controlled your... I'm sorry to be all dog-like, it's just... Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. It's for, <laughs> but the moment you think you've, could, you've sorted it, that's mm. when you're your most vulnerable because mm. that's when they'll suddenly, do, they'll suddenly yeah. eat the sandwiches of the burly fishermen in the Sutton Park that you don't want that to do yeah. and you have to run away from yeah. because they've grabbed their sandwiches. Not, yeah. I'm over it now, but anyway. <laughs> so, <laughs> again, a big debate, you know, the role of professional support, medical help. You, you said a thing about your knee. Do you want to say anything more about the value of getting professional help on occasions? Yeah, I think it's important to talk about because there is, within Christianity, there is a strain of a line of thought that says if you need medical help with mental health problems and you're not spiritual enough or you're not doing something right with God and it's your fault, which I struggle to see any logic in. Um, I think sometimes you just, people have problems with physical problems with their brain, you know, chemical imbalances where drugs can control that and help you. Um, in the same way, you know, if you've got a problem with your thyroid and you take your thyroid medication, it keeps it under control. Um, and that's not unspiritual, that's just pragmatic. Um, so I, I, I ruptured my ACL and in terms of what happens in medicine, your ACL can never heal itself on its own, your anterior cruciate ligament. It has to be fixed with surgery. But I, at no point did I not believe that God could heal it if he wanted to. Of course he could. He's God. He, he made me. He could heal it in an instant. I could go back to playing football. But that didn't happen. I asked, I asked God to heal it. But in the end, I went and had reconstructive surgery and years of physio. Yeah, hopefully Tuesday night. <laughs> We're all worried about Tuesday night. <laughs> How many... I'm going to play in goal mostly. You didn't just do it once though. How many times you did your cruciate? So I, I did my cruciate when I was 16 and it, the, I got taken to hospital and they did an x-ray which doesn't pick up on ligaments and I then played football with no cruciate ligament for 11 years and had a lot of re... Uh, yeah. Where, where the knee would come out of joint and I'd be in a lot of pain a lot of times. 
Okay. In Brazil, they call, they call it the worm, which when you've got the worm and your friends are playing football, the worm doesn't let you sit at home, even though you know you should be doing work or you should be resting your knee. The worm says, come on, come on. Temptation. Yeah. We talked about dogs, we talked about football. We're in real trouble because I'm going to get told off. We start talking about rock music, we're gone. <laughs> so, uh, uh, but I think it just un underscore that. I think it's really helpful that, uh, you know, Kath and I did a couple of questions of life videos there around this whole balance between healing and medicine and mm. how we believe very strongly that God is at work in both and yeah. there's a combination and a partnership that we need to hold together. With the area of anxiety as well, I think it's important to say, I did touch on it, that it's not a quick fix. Mm. And there are some anxieties that you wrestle with for years. Um, and I think that is a part of human experience. Yeah. I think the Apostle Paul, there were things that worried him that he wrestled with for years. Um, and sometimes that's healthy when it's concern for other people. That's a healthy concern, yeah. but sometimes it's not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I do think God can bring freedom from that. So, uh, let me go to another question. Um, we're very much in a culture that pushes someone's anxiety under the carpet and that it means we look weak. Uh, this is the question. As a church, how do we rectify this and ensure that, there's suffering, that those who are suffering with anxiety within the church community have somewhere or someone to talk to about? That last point, you said it was a, a community thing. Mm. Uh, to openly talk without judgment uh, and to be able to work through their anxieties at a pace that is appropriate for them. Do you want to say anything more it's on that? probably a better question for you, Donald. <laughs> well, I think the question is absolutely right. And I think what you were saying is, is absolutely right, that God never intended us to be islands and isolated and to be alone. We are to carry each other's burdens. And that's not something you can do with judgment. It's something you do with compassion. And uh, I think that we have to, you, you know, I, I get anxious all the time. If you see me, those of you do, 10 minutes before anything I'm doing, I'm anxious. That's mm. the reality. I manage it such that I can still do things. But I think any sense that we condemn or reject or push away people because of the anxieties that they may be feeling is really, really damaging. Mm. We have to be people of humility, honesty, grace, listening to each other, walking with each other, being slow to speak uh, and quick to listen and, and not giving people glib uh, solutions that if we're really honest, didn't even work for us, mm. but we think they ought to work, so we say them. Mm. Uh, I think that's really unhelpful. The most important thing we can do is what that passage talks about is we stand with them in presenting the requests. Mm. We stand with them in petitioning God. Mm. You know, when Jesus, uh, he, talks, he, says, uh, he, he tells them a parable to tell them to keep praying and not to give up, and the widow is begging the, the unjust judge to answer her cry for justice. Mm. And... We stand with people and we pray. I think one of the greatest sadnesses of my, my thinking is when people stop praying with someone because they haven't seen the prayer answered. Mm. And we need to stand with people for years praying with them, bringing that request. Mm. Sorry, that was a bit of a... Yeah, it's no. not my story. <laughs> Go back to you. That you, thing, you, when you said together, what did you, did you expand that more? 
together. I think something that came into my mind, you said something a while ago. Um, I think in the Christian culture, we often have this idea that there's like an ideal way to live. So if you live your ideal Christian life, you know, you'll be married, you'll have a couple of kids, decent career, you'll be good looking, and you'll have your house with your mortgage paid off, and you'll do great things for Jesus and be exciting and funny and good at music. Um, but I think we've Christian culture maybe has strayed quite a long way from biblical culture in that sense. You know, no one was looking at the Apostle Paul and saying, you know, poor bloke, never found the one, did he? Mm. Um, really missed out on what God had for his life. Poor man, always single. Yeah. <laughs> probably wasn't the best looking bloke either, Paul. I think it's quite, probably quite disfigured from the batterings he had in his life. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. So I think, and, and Jesus as well, you know, he died when he was 33 and he spent 30 years as a laborer or a carpenter, which I was thinking of that today. It's like, you know, that guy lived the perfect life and 30 years of it, he was in and out of a workshop working with wood and no one really knew him. And that's the perfect life. That's the way God lived on earth mm. for the majority of his life. He just did manual work <laughs> mm. and he never got married, poor bloke. Missed out on what God had for him. I do think... <laughs> I'm not going to say... I do think a lot... Sometimes our anxieties are caused by comparison. Yeah. And it's really damaging. Yeah, and so... And yeah. Like social media, yeah. all this stuff. We, we feel anxious because we're not what somebody else has pretended they are. Yeah, yeah. And I think as a church, we, we need to stand against that. Let's be real, let's be honest, yeah. let's... Helpful to remember Jesus and Paul worried, had anxiety. Mm. It's normal. Okay. Um, I'm trying to work this phone and listen to you. And uh, so some, someone said this, anxiety is really hard, but if you can know what, it's what it is causing and what is causing it and place it in God's hands, and that's about that request, mm. then that's good. And then they say, and express gratitude, giving thanks for his help, then things can get easier. Mm. Talk, just to explain to me a couple of practical things. When you do your thanksgiving at the end of the day, your five things, yeah. how do you do that and how do you pray? Do you write? Do you speak it out loud? Do you think it? Do you sing it? Do you dance it? <laughs> what, what do you do? Always do you draw it? it. Um, no, I'll, I'll, so I, I've had my shower, I've brushed my teeth. Last thing I do in the day is I kneel by my bed and I've got my notebook and my Bible. Do you kneel, really? Yeah. Okay, why? I don't know. <laughs> I think it's, it's a serious business. It's like, this is the last thing I'm doing today. I might die in the night. It's, uh, is that an anxiety of yours, Paul? No, it's just... <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's a reality, isn't it? People do. Um, and you're approaching God, and I don't take enough time to think about him properly in the day. So I kneel down, and I write down five things. So you kneel and write. So I put a little plus, and I'll write the thing I'm grateful for, and then I make sure there's five things. Um, sometimes I do seven or ten, um, uh, and then I'll write, thank you, Father. And then I'll read a psalm. So I've got a bookmark in the psalms, and I'll read the next psalm, unless it's a massive psalm and I'm knackered. I'll read a bit of a psalm, um, and then I go to bed. Yeah. And, and normally you... I'm asleep within 30 seconds because the job I do is knackering. Tiring. Tiring, sorry. It's all right. Yeah. 
um, but yeah, when you're a bit better rested or when there's stuff going on in your life, you can lie there for a bit and things go around in your head. That's and generally, how do you pray? Do you write? Do you speak out oh, loud? Oh, I write it do down. Do you think? I write it down. You write? Yeah. Okay. okay. Oh, generally right. in life? Yes. No, most of my prayers are in my head. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Um, time's beating us, uh, and so is this phone. Um, Don't be anxious. No. Someone said, should the church offer more as regards counselling? And I would say we would love to be able to do that. And if folks feel it's on their heart to develop and nurture gifts of counselling, that would be fantastic. Um, so we'd love to have more and more people who are skilled and gifted in supporting and counselling. I think there are people in the church that do that naturally. Mm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm going to give you one more question. To, I'm going to end on an easy one. I hope it's an easy one, if I can find it. Here we go. Uh, what did the guard say to you when you're, short, when you're in your shorts holding a watering can? He called me over. He was clearly the leader. I think he was dressed all in black and the other guys were all in camouflage. Um, and he said, do you know Carlinhos das Malvinas? And I said, yeah, everybody knows him. He's, you know, he's killed a lot of people and everyone's scared of him and he's robbed a lot of people. Which annoyed him because he clearly meant, do you know where he is? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but I wasn't sure exactly where he was. Um, yeah, it's a long, basically my dad had been visiting him in jail and he'd broken out of prison and was in the area. Um, and my dad had given him somewhere to sleep the night. Um, and that had been tipped off and the police came, but my dad had got him off the land just beforehand. Um, but they killed him later that day. They hunted him all day and killed him. He was a dangerous man, really dangerous man. Mm. Um, very frightening for your dad. Yeah, well, my dad felt very strongly that... It's a long... So my, my dad would be better telling it, but my, God, my dad basically felt that God wanted him to visit this guy in prison and had to make a point of it. Um, and visiting a Brazilian prison is not something you do casually. Um, and so he did, and so they developed a relationship, and when he broke out of prison, he came to my dad for help, because he was on the run. Um, uh, and my dad felt it was right to give him help. My dad gave him his last meal before he died, yeah. Mm. Um, bread and wine, yeah. Um, and goodness knows what will happen with him. Yeah, if when he was running through those bushes, he turned his heart to Jesus, uh, I wouldn't be at all surprised to see him in heaven. I remember he came to our house to ask my dad for money, and we, we had some juice in a jar, and he was sat at the table, and all my focus was going into pouring this juice without my hand trembling, because I knew how many people this guy had killed. Just like, never poured a harder glass of juice. Mm. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you ever so much for uh, being open to question.